what are you guys doing the night of Tuesday, August 21st? Not to brag, but I'm going to be hanging out in the studio with a bunch of really smart, funny teenagers. And we're putting them to work, answering difficult parenting questions from our listeners. You guys have been sending these in, and they're amazing. Questions like, should I let my 13-year-old son go on dates? And what should we name our new family pet? Keep sending these in, or just visit our website to submit your questions to our teen panel. And chances are, they might have some surprising wisdom for you, because they were so recently little kids themselves, and with a lot of issues like digital privacy or gun violence. Their generation has the most at stake. And we're trying something fun. If you want to call in your questions live, we're doing open phones that night. So join us. That's Tuesday, August 21st. We have more information on our website, longestshortesttime.com. The last time my husband and I took a spontaneous trip was he asked me on like a Thursday if I wanted to drive to Mississippi on Saturday morning, stay up all night, and then drive home Sunday afternoon. And so I said yes. And we drove to Mississippi, and I spent the whole night catching 400 spiders. How do you catch a spider? My husband was looking for wolf spiders, so you have to do it at night. Wolf spiders, they have this thing that's like cats where when light goes over their eyes in the dark, they flash a little bit. You have to wear a headlamp or have a flashlight. So you look for this flash of light in the leaves. And then when you see one, you walk towards it and you take your vial and you pop it down over the spider. It is genuinely really fun. I don't believe you. It's like catching Pokemon. Like if Pokemon were real, this is what I imagine it would feel like. Longest, shortest time listeners, I am so happy to introduce you to our new producer, Jackie Sajiko, who I recently learned is married to a biologist who does something or another involving wolf spiders. He looks at spiders having sex. I didn't know that part. Oh, have I not told you this? I think he spent the past five years of his life looking at spiders having sex. Have you seen this? I have, yeah. They have to take videos for their studies. So I have seen many video clips of spiders mating. What, so what does it look like when wolf spiders are getting it on? I can't believe that sentence just came out of my mouth. Yeah, welcome to my life. Oh yeah, get the kids out of the room because Jackie and I are about to acknowledge the existence of spider sex. Don't worry, it's all going to make sense in a bit. So when a male wolf spider sees a female wolf spider, he'll get like really focused on her and he'll start doing this little vibratory song. He makes this little like boop, 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 if the female's into it, then the male can approach her from behind, and then he'll take his pedipalps, which are these little front mouth arm part things where his sperm is, and then he puts him in the female. So why are we talking about this? Jackie is not only our new producer, she's also now our resident biology expert. Come on, you heard her do the spider noises. Boop, boop, boop. Boop, boop, boop. Does your husband ever bring his work home with him? Oh, yeah. Not the spiders, though. Sometimes he brings like 800 spiders home, but nope. not like. Nope. Not like permanently. And you're okay with that? You are okay with 800 spiders in your home? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. I think the science is really interesting, and I could talk about animals all day. 
the longest, shortest time, we've been thinking, you know, there's so much parenting media out there, but it's pretty speciesist, right? It's all about how to get your human baby to eat, how to get your human kid to take a bath. But there's a whole animal kingdom out there. You know, how do you get your baby whale to fall asleep? How do you get your teen raccoon to stop eating garbage? But seriously, we wanted to know, is there anything we can learn from the ways animals take care of their kids? So we gave Jackie a little homework. We made her our senior animal correspondent and asked her to go out there and find stories in nature about some of the key moments in early parenthood that other species experience, like pregnancy, meeting your kid, those late nights taking care of a newborn. We'll see if there are any lessons out there for our human families. All right, Jackie, we are back in the studio. Hello. Hi. Tell us about our first animal for today. So I thought we could pick up with spiders again. Do we have to? (laughs) Well, fun fact, spiders are actually pretty good moms. I don't think I would have guessed that. Most people don't, but wolf spiders, like the ones my husband studies, they carry their egg sacs on their back, and when they hatch, they carry the babies around for a while, too. Do they make little slings for this, or what? So, like, spiders have two body segments. It's basically a head and a giant butt. They carry hundreds of babies just on their butt, and they walk around. It's like a giant piggyback ride. Good work, Mama. There are these other spiders, too, called mason spiders that build little rock houses to protect their egg sac. They they like to nest, only with rocks. Mm -hmm. So when I went looking for stories about taking care of your newly born kid, spiders came to mind immediately. And I found this one particular spider that goes even further than any of these other spiders as a parent. It's called the velvet spider. Velvet spiders live in South Africa. They're really tiny. They're about a centimeter once they're grown. They have quite a lot of hair, but not in a disgusting way. This is Anya Junghans. She's a PhD student at Greifswald University in Germany, and she studies velvet spiders. It's more like a fur, uh, if you look at them closely. And they are yellowish, brownish, depends a bit on on the individual. I think they are super cute, but it might be a bit biased because I work so much with them. If you look at pictures of them, they are pretty cute. They have these little brown markings on their face that look like two giant puppy dog eyes. But everything else about them looks like a spider, so... Fair, that's fair. But there is something really cool about these spiders. Anya studies them because, unlike most spiders, velvet spiders are what's known as social spiders. Generally, spiders are usually aggressive. So there's about 47,000 spider species known so far, and most of them are solitary. So they live a solitary life. They only meet when they mate. And then otherwise they are aggressive against other spiders. But a velvet spider, they will live all together in one big happy family for their whole life. So usually these colonies are founded by a single female that is already mated when she left the colony. And then she will have her offspring, rear her offspring, and they will mature. And then they will interbreed with each other. So with their sisters and brothers. So that means that they have this very close genetic relationship between the spiders and the colonies. And that goes on over several generations. So that is almost, so clones clones is maybe a bit too far, but it's very inbred. So only half of the females become moms. But the other half of the females, they get to be these virgin aunts, and they help take care of the spider babies in the colony. Where's dad? He died. He died after mating. (laughs) 
He's dead. So Mama Spider calls up her sister and she's like, so will you help me raise these like hundreds of spiders I just gave birth to? Yeah, basically. And the thing is that because they're so closely related, like how they're almost clones, it's kind of like the spider mom is like in eight places at once. It's her and her like sister who is almost identical to her helping take care of her babies. Oh, because you wouldn't do it if your sister spider looked nothing like you and acted nothing like you. You're kind of doing it for your twin. Yeah. Those babies, those nieces and nephews are like very close to being like your own kids because these colonies are so inbred. Wow. So how involved are the aunts, right? Do they take the baby spiders to R-rated movies? Do they buy them the pair of jeans that the mama spider won't let them have? They're there from the beginning. Anya brought back velvet spiders from South Africa to Germany and set up colonies in her lab and watched exactly what the virgin ants were doing. As soon as there was an exec in those groups, we observed them each morning and evening and then wanted to see, okay, which of the females is now sitting at the exec and is caring for the exec. So this we did for several weeks. We saw that both of them do it. They're dividing all of this work up equally. Pretty much, yeah. Both the moms and the aunts help the babies hatch because the babies are too weak to open the egg sacs on their own. Oh, she's there in the labor room. And she's there for late night feedings too. The newborns are kind of picky eaters. When they're hatched, they're too weak to bite prey. (laughs) Their little things are just flopping to the side. They're very soft babies. And Anya was telling me how the female spiders, the aunts and the moms, feed the babies. And this part is kind of gross. What the mothers do is that they regurgitate food for them. So they produce a nourishing fluid from their own resources that they have stored in their body and regurgitate it. And then the spiderlings will gather around her mouth parts and then suck those droplets of nourishing fluid up. And then at some point, of course, her resources are gone because she will not feed during this time. And she will use up to 80% of her own body for feeding it to the spiderlings. And it gets worse for her. At some point, she will not be able to feed them anymore. And the spiderlings will basically at this time crawl on the mother and will start sucking the rest of the resources out of her actively. So basically, the mother will die. and That's always the case. The spiderlings are so dependent on, on this care. So if you just prevent them from this last step where they eat their mother, even then they have a lower survival rate and a lower chance of reproducing themselves. And Anya also saw that in the lab, it wasn't just the mothers who got eaten. The mothers get eaten as well as the virgin females. Wow. So if you are a velvet spider, there is a chance that you will never get to have sex, that you will never have a child of your own, that you will go on to help your sister spiders raise their kids, and then you will sacrifice yourself to those children. Yes. Although Anya actually did say that she would be careful to say sacrifice. Yeah, I would be a bit more careful with the sacrifice word, maybe. (laughs) Because it's not so clear if they really sacrifice in the end, like willingly that come and eat me. Or if it's more like, okay, I I can't really do anything else anymore. And I can't brush you off and and prevent you from eating me. Wow. So an important reminder for all moms and single aunts about the importance of self-care. In a bit, Jackie will be back with more mind-bending family models found in the animal kingdom, including some very devoted and kind of hunky dads who go above and beyond in their duties. Stay with us. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. 
Welcome back. We're here with our producer, Jackie Sajiko, who's been telling us all these cool facts about animal families. Now with less spiders. What do you got for us next? So I want to talk about pregnancy because I know everyone loves hearing pregnancy stories. Just a couple quick facts. Do you know what the longest pregnancy in any animal is? Oh my gosh. A year. No, longer. Two years. Longer. No. What poor animal is this? That's basically like you're just growing a twin. That's not a that's not just dating a young. Mm-hmm. So the frilled shark has um a three and a half year long pregnancy. Oh my gosh. That's the longest of any vertebrate. And then the longest in any mammal is the elephant. It's twenty-two months. So almost two years. Wow. The animal I want to talk about right now is the only animal that does male pregnancy. Do you want to guess what that is, Andrea? I know this one. It is the seahorse, which is kind of already such a magical animal that it's like a horse that lives in the sea but doesn't really look like a horse, but kind of looks like a horse. And I know this because our past guests, Tristan and Biff from the Accidental Gay Parents series, Tristan likes to call himself a seahorse dad. Yeah, I feel like lots of people know that in seahorses, the males get pregnant instead of the females. But did you know that a seahorse dad can carry up to 1,500 eggs when they're pregnant? That's a lot of little sea babies. That could be an amazing reality TV show. Seahorse males have a brood pouch instead of an internal womb where they carry those eggs. And childbirth looks a little easier for seahorses. Um, They kind of just shoot the babies out of their pouch in this like torrent of seahorses. It's like it's raining little seahorses. I've watched the video. And the the daddy seahorse, he's kind of um, just kind of shooting little bursts of seahorses everywhere out of his belly. Does not look as difficult or challenging as a human childbirth by far. I wanted to go deep on seahorse pregnancy because they're the only animal where the males get pregnant. And I figured there's got to be something we can learn from that. So I found this guy, Tony Wilson. He's a professor of evolutionary biology at Brooklyn College, and he studied seahorses for 15 years. When I go to a party or some somewhere and somebody asks what I do and I say I work on seahorses, uh, inevitably somebody will say, oh, you're working on making male humans be able to be pregnant as well or something like that. So he'll be reaching for the cheese platter and everyone will just assume he's trying to figure out how to get male humans pregnant. And it's just also assuming that Humans are very genetically similar to seahorses, which actually I can't think of an animal that's further away. Funny you say genetics. Uh-oh, are we doing science now? Yes, we were We were doing science earlier too. Okay, but genetics, this is getting, it's getting technical. So Tony's research is all about how seahorses reproduce and specifically like the genetic basis of seahorse pregnancy. And a few years ago, he and another scientist, Camilla Whittington, they did a genetic analysis of male seahorses at different stages of pregnancy. What we were interested in doing was to see what actually goes on within the male's pouch during this pregnancy. And so we, we knew in broad strokes what the male's pouch looked like, and we knew from research from collaborating groups how the pouch changed over the course of the pregnancy, and there were some quite dramatic changes in the pouch. So like humans, male seahorse bodies change when they're pregnant, and Tony and Camilla wanted to figure out what are the genes that are causing those changes? They worked with this specific species called the pot-bellied seahorse. They had to go out and catch seahorses, and they had to figure out if the ones they had caught were actually pregnant, which uh, it turns out that's kind of hard to tell. Oh, because you can't pee on a stick if you're already under the ocean. There's no blue line pregnancy test for seahorses yet. 
And you would like to think that like when a female human gets pregnant, the belly gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But in seahorses, even though the males can carry up to a thousand offspring, you can't really tell externally when the male gets pregnant. They don't show. Interesting. So you're like, has he just been eating a lot of pizza and beer lately, or is he with 2,000 children? Yeah. Is it dad bod, or is it dad bod? Or as some people like to call it, a father figure. So Tony told me how they figured out which ones were pregnant. So what Camilla saw is that when males were reproductively active, they'd be pumping their pouches to try to attract a female. But she always noticed that there were a handful of males that weren't doing that. And what she hypothesized was that males that are pumping today and then tomorrow their pouches are no longer being pumped, she predicted that those males were pregnant. So once they figured out which seahorses were pregnant, they took samples from the seahorse dads periodically. And from their genetic analysis, they could see which genes are associated with the changes happening in the seahorse body, like when their pouch tissue remodels or their immune system changes in response to like having embryos in there. And the the most exciting part was that about 5% of the genes that we identified, they not only showed differential expression over the course of pregnancy in the seahorse, but they showed the same differential pattern of expression in mammalian pregnancy. Some of that was really technical. So what he's saying basically is that some of the genes that control the way that seahorse bodies change during pregnancy are also the same genes that control the way that the human body changes during pregnancy. And that is cool because seahorse pregnancy independently evolved. It's completely different. But a lot of the genes that are involved in this function are the same as the genes that are involved in pregnancy in mammals. So while pregnancy has evolved really differently across all these animals, their bodies are using some of the same tools. And the fact that we share some of the same genes with so many different animals shows we share a common ancestor from way back in the past. And humans have a bunch of genes that we don't know what they do. And so genetic studies like Tony's and other animals we're related to can help us figure out what those genes might do in humans. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know we had so much in common with boy seahorses. Now, I understand that you took a special interest in another animal for today's show. Yeah, I got really into the American coot. They're an animal that takes the concept of bonding with your newborn to a really high stakes level. I don't know if I've ever seen an American coot. This is a a bird? Yeah, it's a bird. They're water birds, so they look kind of like ducks, except they're totally gray all over with this really bright white beak. So I'm picturing a duck on a street corner dressed in all black and white, like a like a duck mime. Yeah, fewer stripes. Okay, but they're not in Paris. Right. Where do these guys live? All over the United States. You find them in marshes next to lakes, usually in these crowded flocks. They're actually really, really common birds, but they're also really bizarre. What makes them bizarre? So I talked to a scientist who studied them. His name is Dai Shizuka. He's a professor in ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. When he was a PhD student, he studied coots and... Because of that, he had to spend a lot of time with them, and he likes them, but he also says that... They are loud and obnoxious. It's no two-year-old saying no all the time, but it's up up there. They are not just annoying to listen to for humans. They can kind of be really annoying to each other. Coots are brood parasites. So brood parasites are birds that lay eggs in other birds' nests. Famous examples are like cuckoos and cowbirds. So cuckoos are a kind of parasite where they lay their eggs in other species' nests, and then those other birds take care of the cuckoo's eggs. But with coots, they will lay their eggs in another coot's nest. What? 
jerks. Yeah, huge jerks. And coots sometimes do this because they've lost their own nest to a predator. And sometimes they have a nest and they'll still lay their eggs in their neighbor's nests. But either way, the coot is hoping that their neighbor will take care of their chick for them. So the neighbor coot comes home and he's like, ah, free baby. Can they tell? I mean, how do they know which kids are their kids? So Di knew most of the time coot parents reject chicks that aren't biologically theirs. And he wanted to figure out how the coot parents were able to tell their kids apart from the parasite kids. So what he did was he went out to a bunch of coot nests and he took eggs from all those nests and he hatched them in an incubator. Then he brought the chicks back out to the nests. Swapping chicks across nests. He would return one chick every day. So sometimes he'd return a chick to its biological parents' nest the first day and then a stranger chick on the next day. Other times he would put in a stranger chick first and then a coot's biological chick. And he saw that the coot parents would always pick the oldest chick, whether or not it was actually related to them, as their chick. What that says is that there's learning involved, that the parents have to learn what their own chicks are like. And then they use that to tell the difference between their own chicks and someone else's chicks. So they they don't know which ones their chicks are until they've hatched. Right. And they can't know what their own chicks look like before they meet essentially. It's not enough that they can tell chicks apart because they clearly can. They also have to know what their own chicks are like, <laughs> like they, and they have to learn that. You know, if my family went this route, I don't think we would have kept my brother. We're pretty different. They'd have been like, he's not enough like his sister. We, this is definitely an intruder. Sorry, Mike. It would be a lot rougher for younger siblings, especially because in Coots, the rejected babies get pecked to death. It happens pretty quickly, so it was really rare for us to be able to see this behavior, but uh, the few times we actually directly observed it, it was pretty brutal. Um, so we def- we've, we've seen parents actively kill off chicks where they peck at their head and they'll like hold them under the water and yeah it's not pretty they don't have to do that they could just send them out in the wild yeah they're tough parents coots are pretty tough in general also they are the most aggressively parental (laughs) bird they fight all the time with their neighbors and they try to dupe other neighbors and ah Okay, so why are they offloading their eggs in the first place? Is this because they don't feel like they can provide a good enough of a future for their children and they think their neighbors could do better? Or are they just trying to schluff off the extra work? Di was saying that it's kind of both. There's, a, I think, a pretty simple and relatable and universal answer. Parenting is really expensive. <laughs> So it's not just us, right? Babies take a lot of energy and time to raise, and that's just the same in all animals. Coot parents, they are defending these pretty tiny territories often at these lakes that are jam-packed with coots. So under those conditions, if you have the energy left over to lay more eggs, but you know that you can't raise them, you might as well lay your eggs in your neighbor's nest and just cross your fingers and hope that they survive. Because if they don't, your territory was over capacity anyway. But if you successfully dupe your neighbor to care for them, then it's a free chick for you. 
And so basically all that brood parasites are doing is no different than anyone else. It's just trying to give their own offspring a better shot. Okay, so coots might have a terrible name for a bird, but they are not terrible parents. Right, at least they know their failings. And they're trying to give their kids a better life. It's just, you know, they're trying to give their kids a better life with other coots. Yeah, bad call. In a bit, Jackie is going to share her conclusions from all of this research, from spider sex to coot calls. Have we learned anything? Don't go away. Say advertisement. Advertisement. Welcome back. Jackie Sachiko, our producer, has convinced me that in my next life, I definitely want to come back as a seahorse woman with a demanding career and not a middle child baby coot. So you've told us all about animals today. What, what can we learn from them and bring back to how we raise human kids? You know, I asked the scientists I talked to what lessons we can take away from these animals. This is Anya Junghans, the woman who works on velvet spiders. Um, So generally, I think you have to be very careful because, of course, spiders are not humans. (laughs) Spiders are actually very different to humans. Well, I certainly don't make my own parenting decisions based based on what coots do. And this is Dai Shizuka, who studied the coots. There's no morality in evolution per se. So it's hard to take lessons in terms of values. I love studying about other animals, but I'm not trying to be them. <laughs> yeah, I know. This, this is all making sense, right? Humans aren't spiders or seahorses or coots. But I do feel a connection to animal parents sometimes. You know, like sometimes you see a video of a golden retriever nursing her puppies and she gives the camera a look like she's a proud mom and you feel connected. Yeah, I do too. I I think you're not alone. Even Anya and Dai sometimes feel that way. Dai was telling me when he was in the field studying the coots, he'd see parent coots would pick favorite hatchlings in their nests. And whenever the parents gave another hatchling attention, this favorite chick will just start making those loud, yelpy sounds and kind of climb all over the neck of the parent. And the parent will, instead of like beating up on the annoying uh, chick, will go and peck at the chick that it just fed. It's just like, it can't help but overlap that image with like things we see and do as humans or or sibling rivalry and you know among me and my brothers because you always look through the human eyes on these kind of species and for us it would be like whoa what's happening there so i would not eat my own mom <laughs> and i shouldn't but for those spiders of course it's the best they can do in an environment where they have a high risk of dying without reproducing One of the things I was thinking about while reporting on this was why I could listen to stories about animals all day. And I think it's because when we talk about animals, we're really talking about ourselves. Really? What do you mean? Like with the velvet spiders, their whole life cycle where where the babies have to eat the moms to survive. That sounds like a metaphor about human motherhood. It reminds me of the giving tree. You give and you give. Until you die and your babies eat you and your clone sisters. (laughs) It's just like humans. 
Yeah, it's like looking at an extreme of how this could go, and it, it makes you really think about what reproduction is all about. We kind of can't help but make it about us. Yep, humans are great at that. Yeah. So don't look at animals as role models. But I do think there's something we can take away from these stories about animal parents. When I study this, and I'm a parent too, and I guess what I think about is all animals are facing the same basic problem. I think it's just, there's just a lot of different ways to solve this problem of how to have a family and raise offspring. Learning about how animals live and parent, that actually makes me feel less alone. Well, lucky for you, Jackie, I have one more animal that I'm going to tell you about today. Ooh, I'm excited to hear. This is one that I know quite a bit about. And listeners at home, you guys can play along and try to guess what kind of an animal this is. So when the females get pregnant, they typically gestate about one baby at a time, sometimes two. In very rare cases, it could be three. And actually, there have been some reported cases of very large litters, like septuplets, that just get extensively documented. Like on a TV show. Uh Uh-huh. So when the females give birth, because of the design of their bodies and the size of the babies, it can kind of feel almost miraculous every time it happens. The females can often experience injuries like tearing, broken ribs. Their labors can last for full days. And once born, their babies are fully dependent on them for survival. They can't walk on their own. They only have 30% of the adult brain size. They cannot find their own food source, often even when given a chance to nurse or breastfeed. Yes, we're talking about a mammal. This species really has a hard time doing that. Wow, I just can't guess what this is. The babies, they're quite dumb and helpless, but they have an ability to trick nearby adults into caring for them. Like, for example, they smell really good. And it's been studied that in the first six weeks, that smell can inspire activity in the reward-related cerebral areas of the species that gives birth to them. Andrea, is this people? Yeah, (laughs) that's people. (laughs) We're animals, too. Which I learned thanks to your reporting this week. Thank you so much for your great work, Jackie. Thanks for letting me nerd out this week. So tell us, what non-human animal is most like your family? Leave us a comment for this episode. That's episode number 169. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our editor this week is Abigail Keel. You can usually find her producing one of my favorite podcasts, Unladylike. Go subscribe. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Akatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, we briefly mentioned in this episode that a seahorse dad is a term some trans parents are embracing. So next week, we're going to hear from an aspiring seahorse dad. All I've ever wanted to do is be a parent, and I never thought it would be this hard. Like, even after I knew I was queer, and, you know, even after I knew I was trans, I always thought what happens is you you turn 16 and you lock eyes with someone across the room and then you fall instantly magically in love and then you get married and then you have kids and that's how it works. Instead, CJ is thinking about doing this as a single seahorse dad. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. 
And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories. Right now, we'd love to talk to parents who are poly or in a triad relationship. Tell us how your family works. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Sure.